Welcome to, um, to the book launch of the untold story of the Golan Heights, Occupation, Colonization, and Jaulani Resistance. Uh, my name is Dr. Omar Al-Ghazi. I am Associate Professor in the uh, Media and Communications Department here at, at LSE, and I will be chairing, um, chairing this event. We, um, we have four fantastic uh, speakers and, and contributors to the, um, to the book. They will first um, speak for around um, half an hour, and then we will move to, um, to Q&A. Um, and just to mention that um, you probably already saw that copies of the book are available for purchase outside the room after, um, after the um, event. 15 pounds. 15 pounds. <laughs> Um, so yes, please, uh, you know, if you're interested, do, do purchase it. And uh, just to note that the event is being, um, is being recorded. Um, I will now introduce the speakers. Welcome, welcome everyone. Um, first, uh, Mona Dajani, um, who holds a PhD from the Department of um, Geography and Environment here at the, at the LSE. Her research focuses on documenting water struggles in agricultural communities under settler um, colonialism. She is a senior research associate at the Lancaster Environment Center, where she works on a uh, project entitled Transformations, Transformations to Groundwater Sustainability, um, and it explores grassroots initiatives of intergenerational holistic groundwater governance. Um, she has contributed to numerous studies on the hydropolitics of the Jordan and Yarmouk River basins. Um, we, all, we have uh, Monir Fakhreddin, who is um, on, on Zoom, uh, joining us online. He is Associate Professor in Philosophy and Cultural Studies and Dean of the Faculty of Arts at Birzeit University in Palestine. He has directed a new master's program in, in Israeli studies um, there and worked as a research fellow at the Institute for Palestine Studies in uh, Ramallah. Munir has published in Arabic and English on British colonial land policies in Palestine, as well as on current issues in um, Palestine and the occupied Golan Heights. Among his edited volumes is the General Survey of Israel 2020, published by IPS. He holds a doctoral degree in Middle Eastern Studies and Islamic Studies and History from New York um, University. Michael Mason is director of the Middle East Center. He is also associate professor in the Department of Geography and Environment and associate of the Grantham Research Institute for Climate Change and the Environment. His research interests encompass environmental politics and governance, notably issues of accountability, transparency, and security. And um, to my left is Omar Testel. He's, um, how do you say it? Okay. <laughs> is associate professor in the Department of Geography at Birzeit University, Palestine, and studies landscape and ag agroecological transformation in the Eastern Mediterranean. His research works to make more resilient and just agricultural landscape. He holds a PhD in geography and sustainable agriculture from the University of Minnesota and was a postdoctoral fellow at Columbia University in New York in 2015. He has edited an Arabic-English guide entitled Palestinian Wild Food Plants in 2018 as part of a community-based research collective. So welcome, um, speakers, and uh, we will start. Um, Muna, are you starting? Or? No, I'm Michael. Sorry. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so go ahead, Michael, when you're... Uh, thank you, Omar. Thank you all for turning out tonight. 
to this uh, book launch. Much appreciated. Um, this book is a combination of uh, a research project, uh, a collaborative research project between LSE, uh, Bezet University, and Al Masad, an NGO in the Golan Heights. And so I want to um, take this opportunity to thank everybody involved in this project who are multiple researchers and, and uh, support staff. Um, it was funded through the uh, Emirates Foundation, Ab University Collaboration Programme at the LSE Middle East Centre, um, which has also funded all sorts of collaborative projects across the region. Um, I wanted to say, as they are here, we're very fortunate tonight, we have at least half the contributors to the book uh, in this room tonight, physically or virtually. So I wanted to just to sort of, uh, uh, they don't have to speak, don't worry, just could announce who they are. And just perhaps put your hand up. Um, firstly, Ala Iktash. Put your hand up. Say hello, Ala, who um, PhD student here at LSC, contributed a uh, co-authored a chapter in the book and a, a lovely contribution about the hidden history of the Mount Hermon ski resort in the Golan Heights. Uh, uh, Amal Ahon is here. She's uh, contributed a fantastic chapter on Israeli education policies in the Golan Heights and more generally around the so-called Druze curriculum, which is the chapter in the book. And Jamana Abbas, who if you bought the book already, you'll see these wonderful maps in the book that Jamana's uh, drafted and also contributes a really interesting contribution on what we call counter-mapping. In the book, we talk about something called counter-mapping, counter-geography, we might say a bit about what that is. So welcome. <laughs> fellow contributors, because we haven't seen each other in person for, for at least a couple of years. Um, this book was generally supported by, by Bloomsbury. Um, we have Nina Hayes-Thompson outside, one of the marketing uh, people at Bloomsbury, selling copies of the book, softback copies at very reasonable £15. And Yasmin, is Yasmin audience? Yasmin Garsha, who's uh, on the editorial board uh, of the Middle East Islamic Studies series. Uh, has been incredibly helpful in this project, as also her colleague, the editor, Sophie Rudland, is not here because she's a new parent. So, so uh, congratulations to Sophie uh, um, with young Morgan, isn't it, Morgan? Yes. Um, so anyway, straight on to the presentation. We're going to have four of us talking. We can't possibly uh, convey the whole richness of the book in, in this 30 minutes, so we'll try to sort of highlight some particular themes. Now, we're social scientists here at LSE. It's one of the things that we try to do, it's in our kind of uh, motto, is look into the causes of things, okay? Understand the causes of things and try to promote understanding which promotes the betterment of society. Um, I think a good starting point here is an apparent paradox in what I would call the mainstream narrative of the Golan Heights. The mainstream Israeli narrative of the Golan Heights, so this is part of northern Israel, since December 81, it's effectively, effectively been annexed. In other words, it's been governed by Israeli law administration. Um, and it's often sort of advertised as, as a desirable place to go on a holiday in Israel. Some describe it as a Switzerland of Israel. Um, so this is the paradox which can't be explained by this mainstream narrative. This is it. Um, which is why over half a century since the Israeli occupation of the, uh, of the Golan Heights started in June 67, why in that time do the vast majority of the indigenous Arab Syrian population, which now 
numbers about twenty five twenty six thousand identify as syrian and refuse israeli citizenship ok um, over ninety five percent are not israeli citizens now the paradox here is this makes no sense in terms of the normalization discourse why would these people turn down israeli citizenship they have additional economic opportunities they'd be able to participate politically in elections and governance and so forth they'd have more opportunities as students more mobility why are these what these people what's what's with them why are they refusing to embrace this israeli citizenship now it's very difficult to explain this within this mainstream narrative without attributing some kind of delusion or lack of education, lack of awareness. Okay? This is a very educated people. Um, and the book is very much the untold story. The untold story being the story of this population. And the, un the untold story of the Golan Heights explains or dissolves this paradox. Because we dissolve this paradox by uncovering a history of occupation and annexation and a whole um, series of systemic continuing injustice to this population, which informs the grievance, the ongoing grievance about their um, perceived lack of self-determination. Okay, so this this Syrian identity, which seems quite strange to an outsider, why on earth, even with the Syrian conflict, these people are choosing to to stay to identify themselves as Syrian. So this identity, this Syrian identity uh, uh, um, assertion, maintenance, is actually crucial to, to, to the untossed of the Golan Heights. And it's something we explore in all its various facets in the book. I thought a good way to start is, I don't know if you can all see this, there's a couple of maps. These are the maps from the introduction to the book. The first shows the occupied uh, Golan Heights. I won't go into detail here. Uh, the um, western boundary um, is defined by the um, basically 1949 Syria-Israel armistice line. The eastern boundary is defined by a 1974 ceasefire line uh, between uh, Syria and Israel. So this is a, 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 a territory very much defined by conflict and the, the uh, uh, extent to which parties are able to agree to at least to some kind of temporary partition or territorial boundary at the end of at least the end of some kind of uh, direct conflict now one of the things we've done with this map is we've only shown the remaining syrian settlements which remain to this day from from the golden heights so we've got you can't see this very much but we've got uh, five uh, uh, villages up in the north uh, four of them are Druze villages, one Awajar is an Alawite village, and we have the regional capital of Kanaitra in the east. Uh, this regional capital, originally controlled by Israel, uh, Syria uh, um, managed to gain control of it in October 73, uh, in the 73 war, and then Israel withdrew from, from this territory around the regional capital, and when it withdrew, uh, it uh, demolished, destroyed the capital. The capital has remained kind of devastated. Um, one of the things I wanted to show with this map is the extent of the remaining Syrian settlement. Okay? That's designed to make you think about what happens here. Here we have the kind of um, Israeli settlement 
in the uh, occupied Golan Heights. When the, within a couple of months of the end of the uh, uh, June 67 war, 95% of the population of the Golan Heights were displaced, either forcibly moved out or they fled, um, some of them assisted by the Syrian army. Only 6,000 population remained in the north. Since that time, there's been a series of uh, uh, waves of Israeli settlement. Um, we know, and m many of you who know about the situation in the, in the occupied Palestinian territory, we're very much talking about the same kinds of processes, except the, the extent of settlement is not of that magnitude in, in the Golan Heights. There's been a series of, initially at least, in the 1970s, settlement didn't occur to the extent to which those supporting settlement uh, would have liked. And we had, as in Palestine, some of the key promoters of settlement being uh, what we call Palestinian organizations, like the Jewish National Fund and the settlement department of the World Zionist Foundation. But basically, we have now about 34 plus settlements in the occupied Golan Heights with about 26,000 um, settlers. The um, settlement waves have been sort of uh, accelerated by firstly annexation, effective annexation 81, by the collapse of Israel-Syria peace talks in 2000, and more recently, 2019, the American presidential proclamation by uh, Donald Trump recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Each of these historical events has been a, a trigger to increase settlement. Now, um, in terms of international law, we can go back to um, UN Security Council Resolution 242, 1967, which treats the occupied Golan Heights as part of the occupied Arab territory by Israel following the June 67 war. So that includes, of course, the occupied Palestinian territory. The uh, occupied Syrian Golan is less discussed in the literature on the uh, Israeli occupation of the occupied Arab territory. Um, in 1981, when Israel effectively annexed the Golan Heights, they denied that this was an annexation, this movement from military law to civil law, but it was treated by international legal scholars and the UN as effective annexation. And uh, UN passed a Security Council Resolution 497 in 1981, which said, I'll quote, declares that the Israeli decision to impose the law's jurisdiction and administration in the occupied Syrian Golan Heights is null and void and without international legal effect. Um, those who know international law will know that settlement in an occupied territory is prohibited under Article 49.6 of the 1949 Fourth Geneva Convention for, for Protection of Civilians. There's an interesting moment I just wanted to highlight, in, in September 67, the chief legal counsel to the Israeli foreign ministry, called Theodore Meron, is asked to produce a memorandum, a memo, a legal memo, for then uh, Prime Minister Levi Eshkol. The memo is about, can we, can we undertake Jewish colonization of the occupied Arab territory? Theodore Meron produces a four-page memo, goes to, the, uh, goes to Eshkol, basically says, no, international law maintains a categorical prohibition of Jewish settlement. Categorical meaning, however it's justified as voluntary civilian movement, as status or not, 
there's a categorical imperative. Remember, Israel ratified the Fourth Geneva Convention in 1951. So Israel is bound by the Fourth Geneva Convention. Thinking about the turn of history, if that advice had been taken into account, that the Prime Minister said, okay, let's think about here international law and, and whether we want to go ahead with this whole settlement project. My last slide. Um, this shows you there were different estimates about uh, the number of Syrian settlements, villages, farms destroyed after the uh, June 67 war, after Israel started its occupation of the Golan Heights. Within quite a short period, within a couple of months, we have a whole series um, of villages and farms which are flattened, which are destroyed. Israel used a security rationale to destroy, to flatten these various settlements. The picture on the right is a remains of a village, Al Kishnaya village. Um, you see this kind of landscape. You see the imprints of where the houses used to be, the rubble, sometimes ruined buildings. Sometimes the new settlements are built on top of the old Syrian villages. When uh, Allah, Allah's study of uh, Mount Homer Ski Resort talks about a sentiment, a Neveativ, which is built on top of an old Syrian village. Um, the demolition team in charge of the demolition of the Syrian villages was headed by an Israeli archaeologist, Dan Ehrman, we discussed this in the book, who uh, undertook archaeological surveys before demolitions, trying to find evidence of, of Jewish uh, habitation, ancient Jewish habitation, before demolition. Um, so from that early point, there, there arrived, or there, became, there started a narrative of the attempt to construct a Jewish indigeneity in the Golden Heights, which continues to this day, evidence of former uh, habitation. Fourth Geneva Convention again, 1949, Article 53, prohibits the destruction of public and private property. Under what's called the Additional Protocol in 1977, this is a grave, serious breach of the Fourth Geneva Convention, both the forced uh, 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 as when the Syrian population were pushed out, a military order was passed to prohibit them coming back into the Golan Heights. The, 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 the settlement starts and the, after the property is destroyed. This is from our partner, our Masa, the NGO, which has uh, mapped, and there's a reference in the book to the map which shows these villages, specific villages and names, um, of 341 villages and farms destroyed. Okay, within a relatively short time. Um, and we can discuss some of the implications of that. But I'll now move on to my, my colleague, Muna Mididijani. Thank you, Michael, and uh, thank you everyone for making it. It's great to see a lot of uh, faces of friends and colleagues, and also to meet fellow contributors for the first time. We've had a lot of back and forth online during COVID times, and it's really nice to be here again. Um, I wanted to uh, follow up on the great introduction from Michael about the book and uh, how it all came about. And uh, it's really a bit of a personal reflection as well because uh, when we thought about starting this project, the whole idea was that how can we document the untold story of the Golan Heights. I've been working in the Golan Heights as part of my PhD uh, and just as a Palestinian who has been living on the land, uh, being really struck by, you know, the, the great uh, 
struggle of the of the Jaulani people and how much we can we we have learned from each other. There's been a lot of solidarity that goes on into that relationships for decades. But then at the same time, how much we don't know about it. And this kind of started the whole process of how can we uh, engage with a collaborative uh, knowledge production project. So the whole idea of the project from the onset was that we want to work together on producing a history. For the first time as well, we want to move beyond, you know, the geopolitical importance of that region, uh, its importance in terms of its natural history, um, uh, sorry, its nat natural resources, its significance for as a political um, a geographical location, and how can we be, move beyond that to actually document the story of everyday colonization? How can we actually be part of producing knowledge that seeks to tell a different story, that seeks to actually um, um, leave an imprint behind of, of that great uh, struggle of the Jaulani people. Um, so from the onset, our approach was not to produce a book, but it was much more than just bringing or offering that space and that platform for all of us to learn, to educate each other, and to move beyond to produce knowledge about the Golan Heights. Uh, having said that, you know, um, we, we have come a bit late in, in terms of how much has been produced by Jaulanis themselves. Uh, really a very rich uh, history of documentation that the population has uh, solely on their own, uh, through their own uh, means and through their own uh, resources have developed really a great tradition of document, documentation of their struggle. They, we have we have talked about the book as the untold story. We have spoken about the Golan Heights as a story of a forgotten occupation. Uh, but as, as well, it's not forgotten in the kind of lived experiences of Jaulani's, Palestinians, Arabs, and mul multiple other nationalities who have engaged with that struggle throughout the decades. Um, so with that, uh, we started our project with uh, more of an emancipatory type of learning journey. Uh, and we really wanted it to be coming without we preconceived ideas of what the project should be about, what outputs should the project come up, come, come up with. Um, and that collective approach got us to think together as students uh, from Birzeit University, as scholars, Palestinians, Jaulani, international, British and international as well. Um, and then kind of to really allow that space to happen. And this is when we went to the Golan Heights on a couple of visits, we organized a lot of workshops. Uh, one I will speak about, which is the summer school, which was, I would say, kind of the, the, the event that kind of brought the project together in a very powerful way. So instead of thinking of it as, you know, a project of documentation, of collecting archives and images and documents and calling it a day, basically, we thought about, okay, we want to go deeper. We want to make sure that we are telling the story that we want to tell. And our collaboration with Jaulani students, who, uh, who unfortunately cannot be, there, cannot be here today, uh, has been really a game changer, I think, for the project. When we got together, we thought together about what does that, this project mean to them. And I remember Ali Awidat, one of our contributors, spoke and said, it's the first time uh, that we, Jaulanis, are, are being at the center of attention, at the center of a project. We're usually on the sideline, on the periphery of Palestinian struggle, uh, we identify closely with it, uh, we, are, we are present, we are very active in, um, in popular movements across Palestine, but it's the first time that we are the ones that people are interested in hearing their story. So I think that was intersectional, intersectional uh, experience that we kind of really 
has empowered us really to keep working on this project with all, all our um, strength and energy. Um, another thing that was really important is that in this project we have chosen and we have kind of centered the project on the 1982 general strike that happened in the Golan Heights. For me personally, and I th think I speak of all the contributors, that was kind of a, a very wat a watershed moment for the Jawlanis. This is when a general strike was announced by this small population against the Israeli army, against the Israeli occupation. It lasted six months under really excruciating circumstances. Um, solidarities were forged across the geography of Palestine and the Golan Heights. There seems to be not, not these borders did not exist at that time as well. People were coming uh, to, to support and to stand with the Jawlanis with, 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 all their, with all their might and energy. And I think for us that event was really important. But what we were really interested in, in how that memory of that event lived on in the everyday colonization and settler colonial uh, struggle of the Jaulanis. And this is where we also uh, um, had this great experience of talking to the elders, to the people who were at the forefront of that general strike, who were putting together tactics uh, to, uh, to, to, to meet, to oppose this army, to oppose this strike, and to oppose the, um, the, the enforcement of this Israeli citizenship on this population. Uh, we're going to be showing a few uh, very powerful images that that speak of that uh, contestation and confrontation with uh, the settler colonial entity uh, during those times. And one thing that was really a highlight also of that summer school was that these uh, political veterans of the, of the Golan Heights were speaking together with the younger generations of Jaulanis. And their whole experience of that event was very different. The Jaulanis today, the young generation, are facing uh, you know, critical issues, existential issues with the war going on in Syria, with the, with the really intense Israelification that happens in very aggressive ways and even subtle ways of including them in civil society organization and making sure, sure they access government funds and all of that and their reflection on that event. So we wanted to speak of that 1982 general strike as a process that we, we kind of unfold together. We didn't want to kind of make, sure, make, make it all about the event uh, because we knew that, of course, uh, this is an ongoing struggle and this is an ongoing process of uh, dispossession and elimination that both young and older generation are going through. Uh, but the memorization of that event was really important for us. So it was really great to have that space at Birzeit University where we discussed and talked a lot and we did interviews with, that, with those uh, veterans, spoken a lot about what does that uh, event mean to them. Uh, we also unfolded and unpacked a lot, of, uh, a lot of interesting themes like solidarity in prisons, like solidarity in prison and... Uh, um, and a lot of, a lot of a very interesting themes that are also generational. So this inter, it's intersectional and intergenerational uh, experience uh, and journey was really uh, great. Um, another thing that this project has also expanded much, much more because the idea was that we wanted to produce an on online curriculum and I might leave um, uh, space for Amr to speak a bit more about it. But the idea was that we want to also leave a legacy where we at, at Birzeit University, at other universities, will teach and learn about the Golan Heights as a case study, that we can actually build a curriculum that's, uh, that has an emancipatory objective. It doesn't, it's not here to just tell the story and, and stop there, but kind of actually use it as, uh, as a way 
to engage with these, this ongoing struggle, to think of it intersectionally with other struggles. So this is also when we can, can develop this online uh, resource that's available on the website uh, for learners uh, and students to, to engage with. Um, and lastly, we continue this collaboration even after the book is, has been published. Uh, me and Dala actually were in the Golan Heights in August to participate in the Jaulani Cultural Days. And it was really moving to, actually, to have the audience who were all Jaulanis and also friends and supporters of Jaulanis actually tell us that we have so many stories to tell. We still have this archive that you're putting together, this website that you're putting together can be you know, this platform where, where our stories are told, where we do it collaboratively. And I think this is the important thing. This is uh, the, the, the website will be online, hopefully before the end of the year. Uh, and this is when we will start, uh, start this journey of uh, documenting the untold story of the Golan Heights uh, together collaboratively with Shaolani communities, with our project and with also the Shaolani community itself. And I'll move now to Omar. <clears throat> Thank you, Mona. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here um, from Birzeit University to be with you all. Thank you for, for joining us. I want to um, speak just about two things briefly. First is our chapter. Uh, Mona, Ala, and I collaborated on a, on a chapter um, in, in the book, um, which I'll just move the slide here. Um, it's called Being in Place on the Jaulan Formation and the Agroecological History of Highlands. And um, it's a geography par excellence um, because it is truly trying to engage with the landscape as a living, uh, living place rather than a stage on, upon which history happens. And here, uh, what we're trying to do among other things, is treat the Jaulan as um, a living landscape in which the human communities and the colonization um, is certainly uh, one part of the history of the place. And there are all of these biophysical uh, characteristics that pl have played such an important role in, in the space. And one of the examples we, we give in the chapter is that Jaulan is one of the uh, names and yet there are all of these other geographical names, including Al-Hadabi, in which um, Jolanis themselves refer to, um, in, and, and, all, and, and all of these other uh, uh, geographical names that are kind of overlapping and interchanging that are part of, the, uh, part of this formation, what we call the formation. And here what um, we're trying to do, and this is part of work that I've been uh, doing for uh, the last uh, six or seven years at Birzeit University with our students in geography is developing a concept called the Mekaniya or the Mekaniyat. And this is um, coming, of course, from uh, our kind of critical engage our engagement with critical geography um, across the literature, but also deeply rooted in our own history and, and the way that we use the words um, and concepts. And so uh, the, the chapter engages with this concept of makaniye, um, which uh, of course comes from uh, makan or place, um, but then its um, its root words uh, kaun um, and kana uh, is are actually referred to being in Arabic, and and kana of course many of you probably know 
um, emerges also from proto-Semitic languages that uh, predate Arabic, in, in fact. And they very much refer to, put an emphasis on time rather than place. And it's a really about being in, being in a certain place. And so there's this temporal uh, component in which we're trying to uh, develop. We've, um, part of our group has researched, uh, has published an article uh, in Arabic, uh, in Jadaliyeh, on this uh, topic. And we've recently translated it into English and hope to develop it more. And so this chapter treats in a sense, this living landscape of the Jolan, which you see here, the most famous um, part of it, which is, of course, Jabal al-Sheikh um, before you in the, in, in the photograph um, um, as, as an example of that. Uh, the rest of the chapter um, then moves on to uh, the kind of agroecological um, context of the Jolan as a place which supports people and, sh and supports these communities, which enables their persistence on the land and persistence um, in spite of a colonization project. Um, the, the second thing I wanted to, to mention is the, uh, the website and the, the, the curriculum project. The first thing I want to point out is that there are copies available here for free, um, not 15 pounds. <laughs> Um, in Arabic and English, and there's also um, the uh, LSE Middle East Center working paper, uh, which we've published, and you're free to um, please uh, take take them. It's also going to be available online in both Arabic and in English, and the and the idea is that the working paper already is available, but the the, the curriculum, and it's coming out of very much out of the tradition of shall we say, um, Black Lives Matter uh, curricula, and also in the United States, um, around Standing Rock uh, uh, Native uh, resistance um, curricula that were produced um, in the heat of the moment. And uh, we very much were inspired by those um, uh, movements. And, and frankly, honestly, teaching, um, we have a very limited um, a library to work from in Arabic at Birzeit. And so we were literally, part of, you know, our idea was to provide for um, uh, universities in the Arab world Arabic language resources that they can um, bring into their own classes. So I think I'll stop there. Thank you. I think uh, Dr. Fakhreddin. Tfaddal. Omar, I should start with the uh, cover, with the uh, book cover. Next one. Yes, sorry. Yes. <clears throat> okay. Um, good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm very pleased to speak to you, but I'm also sad not to be with you. Um, um, this is... Um, We've agreed that each one of us would speak like five minutes, but we were we went way beyond that. So I'll I'll try to be be quick, uh, but also I, I want to convey some some ideas uh, because this is this is a project that comes up for me is very very personal. Uh, this is the my hometown, uh, and uh, I grew with these debates and and, and dilemmas. How can you conceive of yourself, what you're doing, what's, what's your story really about? And this project came in a moment 
actually, I'd, I'd really thank personally Muna because she encouraged me to uh, to uh, be a partner in this project, and then Michael, and and it, it turned out to be a wonderful uh, partnership and experience. Thank you very much for that. Uh, but this came. I, I I wrote my chapter and they uh, thought about a lot during the pandemic, during the Corona pandemic, and during that year I. I moved from Birzeit with my family, we went back to Majdal Shams and we stayed there for, for one year. They stayed for two years. And this was for me uh, the first time I stayed for a long time, since maybe two decades. Um, and it forced me to look into really uh, in, in, into some depth, into what, what's, what is a community really, what is identity. Um, and this is a moment also after 10 years of a bloody, painful, uh, tragic destruction of, of Syria, uh, with people killed, forced out, just, uh, homes destroyed, lives destroyed. So what does a homeland mean, and what does the nation-state mean? So this became to me the, the, the real question. What, what is this relationship between community and, and the nation-state? I came rooted in a community that fought the colonial state in order to assert its nation, national state align, uh, uh, identity, okay, identity with its nation state. So this love story between the community and the nation is, is, is very, very doubtful in light of the destruction of the nation state by competing you know, forces at its own dysfunction. Um, so I grew up, uh, I, I grew very critical of this notion of, of national identity, uh, which gave me some perspective on how to think about our experience in the 80s, and, and that reflected, I think that I, for me it was a maturing kind of process, right? I was supposed to be write, writing about something that wasn't really conceptualized, and I think what I wrote is, is a work in pro progress still. Having this context uh, in mind, uh, we, we came across this uh, painting uh, by a local artist from the Junan, uh, who studied in Syria and Damascus and, and went back to the occupied land. And he began to publish on Facebook his you know, paintings, quick paintings, very uh, light, uh, quick and, and, and piercing, something not only this, other, other paintings, but very simple and very capturing. And this one was really, really captured our attention, I, I remember Michael and Muna, because, uh, because it actually, it shows something really, um, it, this is a location, this is the, exactly what we see, we see in the middle, uh, the fence that separates Majdal Shams and really borders the, 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 uh, the houses on that, that side of the town. Uh, and separates it from a land mine, mine field, uh, and then there's this other hill on the other side, on the depth of the, of the uh, picture of the uh, painting, and there's a structure there. So there's these two hills that people communicated with each other on, on the two hills for, for many years. Uh, after 1967, many, many families were separated, um, the Red Cross allowed uh, or, or organized uh, family gatherings until the 81, the annexation, 
Uh, and then the, the, these two years became the site of people uh, uh, meeting with their family members across the uh, uh, distance, shouting, and also became a, 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 a location for, for, for the performance of national identity, basically, gathering for the National Independence Day, the Syrian National Day, and other uh, national occasions. Uh, 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 solidarity delegations would come from uh, Syria, Lebanon, and, 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 and you know, political festivities would be uh, organized on, on, the, on, the, on this hill. Um, <clears throat> so, it, all this, this, this function of this space, of this place, of this location has been changed over time. This was in the 80s, and now uh, neither the political function uh, is, is going on anymore, nor even the personal the connection with the family members take, take place there. Uh, because, because there's technologies now. People dial through WhatsApp or Facebook to their relatives in Syria and they you know, speak more frequently than ever. But back in the 80s, it was really an emotional, personal, political space. Uh, so for, for me, it, it brought a memory, a lost memory, basically, a memory of something that is, is lost, a distance between us, between us today and, and that moment in the 80s when, when, when uh, um, I think uh, this self, this really solidification of a sense that we are actually profoundly, originally Syrian. In order to resist the annexation, right, you have to build the weight against that, that kind of new force that is pulling you. Um, there's something lost there. There's something, some distance from Syria as a state and from that, from that kind of idyllic past that we had, that we knew who, who we are and what, what are we doing. Um, and it came in, in a moment really of despair. Some, so many things changed. The settler colonial machine is really grinding us every day, and uh, all sorts of what uh, Michael suggested in his chapter to call social pathologies emerged so clearly in this um, process of annexation to the margin of the settler colony mm -hmm. that produces so many differences, class and cultural differences, and. and, 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 and and, 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 and dislocations that people really lose a center, a sense of a center and, 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 and focus on the center of their side. Um, so what we are arguing in this book, I think, against the theory that says, that Michael mentioned in the beginning, which is really nice, that people think that this, these dis distances are actually are signs of uh, a, a, a clear Israelization process, that the community is turning to Israel. And the Israeli media works very cleverly to show that this is actually, this is the interpretation of this kind of dislocation of identity, the sense of loss, and, 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 and social pathologies. We are arguing against this. We are arguing that people in the Jilan are, 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 are fighting to recenter themselves in their land uh, and, and preserve distances from the colonial state. Um, maybe we, we need to move to the uh, election 
protest against the election. This is one. Um, the next one, uh, Omar, and then we come back to the screen. And and Munir, just yeah. to remind you of time, like two two minutes. Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll just say that this is this is this happened in two thousand eighteen. Uh, this is a protest, really uh, successful boycott of the forced enforced Israeli municipal elections, uh, which for the first time Israelis decided to you know uh, capitalize on on, on this uh, sense of. Uh, uh, crisis in the community and imposed the sovereignty through the municipal elections and people began to resist it. So this is for me uh, just a picture that shows uh, this uh, intense sense of uh, need to rediscover uh, uh, all the local inner resources that uh, uh, relocate the community vis-a-vis -vis the colonial power. There's no moment of revolutionary, uh, 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 like a purifying revolution, as, as Fanon uh, put it in another context. There's no sense that, well, we, we are, we are revolting against it to purify ourselves from these pathologies. We are put into the machine, but, but there are ways of distancing and resisting an everyday day life level, uh, which is which is really what gives hope uh, to people. Maybe the, the previous one quickly. The, the the map. I just want to mention the, the maps, the wonderful maps by by Jumana because they are, they are examples of how you can map concepts, memories, and and, and practices that uh, defy uh, hegemonic representations. Um, and th these these tools are really significant, and I think there are that they could be um, tools that that young, inspired, determined Jewelans and their allies could use uh, to 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 preserve uh, dignity and and um, rootedness in the land. Just one quick one, 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 one last sentence. Uh, the, the book has uh, attracted a lot of attention, attention in the community. Through We published it through you know, the news, through Facebook, and, and everybody was asking, what does it mean to us? Well, how could it help us? What is, because the, the struggles are immense. And we faced this question from day one, if you remember, um, my colleagues. Uh, how could this, talking about the Junan, really help us? Because people are really caught on in very tough, difficult struggles nowadays. Um, so I think I think the steadfastness of producing knowledge uh, will actually be fruitful. But we need to connect it to other struggles, many, many, many other struggles, and be can be on a global level uh, to regain strength. And, and that's why it's important for me personally to speak to you and and, and hear from you. Uh, in a different country, different location. And thank you. I think I took too much time, but sorry. Thank you very much, and thank you for all the speeches. We, uh, we wanted to finish. We wanted to finish, if, if you allow us, just another two minutes. Um, in the book, there were five poems by the Jaulani poet uh, Yasa Hanja. And uh, Ala is going to read one of the poems. We'll put the poem up on the PowerPoint. Next slide, please. 
which has the English uh, translation, but we'll just have it now a bit. Alan. I think it works, yes? Yeah. Okay. So I have contacted with the, the, po the poet uh, Yasser Hanjar, and I asked his permission also to read his uh, poem. بسم الوردة التي أهديتها لحبيبتي ولأن غزالة تركت الآن المرعى والريح تحمل الغيمة كي يمطر في قلبي لأني أسمي شجرة التفاح أمي وما عرفت عاشقا من بلادي لم يسرق قبلة في ظلها لأن التراب جسمي والعشب شعري لأن الأشجار رموشي والنهر دمي لأن الجنود قتلوا جدي وهو يحرس الحقل ولأني أريد لابنتي أن تكون بين أشجار التفاح يوم أموت Um, all right, now we'll um, open it for Q&A. Maybe um, we'll take three questions. And if you could please, because you know we're short on time to keep it short, introduce yourself, and also speak into the mic so that uh, Munir can hear us as well. Thanks. And yeah, you, ha you would have to press the, um, the button. Um, OK, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, first of all, I want to congratulate the authors on not having the people of the Golan as objects of research, but actors in the research. And that's really important in how, in research ethics, because too often we just see people as providers of data for us. Um, what I'm interested in, I know very little about the Golan. And what I observe is the people in the former Jordanian territories, the former Egyptian territories, took a Palestinian identity to resist occupation. And why the people in the Golan took a different course, which was to take the Jawani identity in order to resist occupation. Okay. Um, any, any other questions now? Um, yes, please. Uh, hello, hi. Uh, my name uh, is Naji. I'm a student in international relations at the University of Oxford, um, and I'm originally from Majd al-Shams, from the Golan Heights. So I'm very, very happy to be here today, and first of all, I really want to thank all of you for your work. Uh, as you said, Mona, I think the, the stories and realities of the occupation are told and retold among us Jordanis all the time, but it often feels like the occupation is sort of the forgotten occupation to the outside world. And so work like this is really important to us, so we really do thank you. Um, my question is, um, for students like me who are planning to work on the Golan Heights, I want to write a thesis, my master's thesis on it next year. Um, what questions should we still be asking? What gaps are there still in our knowledge on the Golan? Um, and in which directions should we take research uh, in the future? Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll take one last one in this round. Uh, go ahead, please, Madawi. Madawi um, Rashid, I'm a visiting professor at the Middle East Center. Um, I'm really like fascinated by this book and I'm definitely going to read it. But what I would like to ask is, do you have a chapter on the Golanis who work in the Israeli army? Mm -hmm. I happened to be in uh, Lebanon in June 1982 
And as the Israeli army approached the airport and the airport of Beirut closed, everybody left to the mountains. And while we were in the mountains of Lebanon, the Israeli army approached. And with the Israeli army, there were the Druze uh, recruits in the Israeli army, which actually, as a very young Arab living in Lebanon, I'm not Lebanese, I was shocked. So could you please explain to us, are they, like between 1967 and 1982, we have these Druze who arrived to greet their cousins on the other side of the border. Who are they? And what, how did they get into the Israeli army? Were they part of a conscription or a voluntary recruitment? Uh, could you please tell us something about them? It is, it's a site that I will never forget. Uh, and I, unfortunately, I don't work on these questions. And I would like now to know if there is a possibility. Um, sure. Um, quickly, I, uh, the, the last question. Um, please, please distinguish between uh, the Jewish communities and Palestinian Jewish communities in what became later Israel in the Galilee and the Druze community in, uh, in the Equalan Heights. These are two critically very se separate, different uh, communities. Um, the the uh, Jews, Palestinian Druze community in the Galilee, in the land that became Israel, resisted Israeli, uh, resisted Zionism, and fought against the Zionist forces in 1948, and as acts of survival, they, they uh, somehow found themselves co-opted into the system. And they were forced to serve in the army in 1956. Uh, many of them resisted, and many of them continued to resist. But the tragic story is that most of them have been put into this machine. Um, and that's another story, and there are good books about that. If you want to read Pais Ferro's uh, wonderful book in English and in Arabic about how this process happened, how they uh, were shifted from being Palestinians fighting uh, uh, against the settlers uh, into co-opted soldiers in the settlers' army, right? Now, the Jolanis were occupied, and maybe this addresses to the first question. The, the Jolanis are part of a different geopolitics, ge right? They're part of Syria, mandate Syria. And then a uh, sense of Syrian nationalism emerged naturally through the normal state processes of integration and, and, and bureaucracy and army service and education. Uh, between 19... Uh, so so that, that's a different course. Now, our, the, the Jolani communities, just to remind you, fought against the French mandate. They participated in the Great Syrian Revolt in 1925. And then they fought actually for Palestine in 1948. And then they became Syrian citizens after independence, of course. They went and integrated into the Syrian army. My father served in the Syrian army in 1967. And, and it took him two years to come back from Damascus to the occupied land. And after 1967, the Israelis tried to Israelify us, but they didn't succeed. Now, it was military rule between 1967 and 1981, right? Military rule. There's no any process of uh, you know, extension of citizenship and so forth. 
when they annexed the Golan, they tried to annex the, the community and give them citizenship and recruit them to the, to the army. And that's exactly why people resisted this occupation and the, uh, the, the, the annexation, precisely because of this. Because they, they understood that being forced into the army is being dismantled as, uh, 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 as a community that had actually a very real Syrian experience. Uh, and so forth. So there's no military service whatsoever, except maybe by individuals who moved from the Galilee to, to the Jordan. Maybe a handful of uh, persons, maybe. Uh, nowadays we see more uh, cooptation, but still very, very, very marginal. The community is very uh, resistant to these uh, policies. Uh, so just, I, I know this question is confusing because you're talking about the same sect, but, and there's a very small geography, it's a few, few hundred, you know, tens of kilometers distant, but, but there are real uh, strong uh, differences. Um, so it's, it's a Syrian identity, not a Jolani identity. Actually, the irony is that we in the Jolani never called ourselves Jolani's. It was the Palestinians or brothers, the Palestinians who called us the Jawlanis because this is a marker of, you know, it's good. It's, we love this name, became Jawlanis. But uh, actually anchoring uh, ourselves in the Syrian identity is just to say basically that this is not the land of Israel and we are not friendly subjects that they want us to be. I mean, this is a basic uh, tactic of resistance, but also it's also founded on real experience. Uh, you know, people were serving in their nation state and promoted in, in the army and the bureaucracy. It was an integration process uh, into Syria uh, throughout the mandate and in the independence uh, years. Uh, for Na Naji, uh, hi Naji, I heard about uh, your uh, participation from Ahmad. Or, uh, let's talk. We need to talk. I, I can't answer you very, very. Uh, quickly now. This is a very uh, deep and important question. There are many, many gaps. Um, we can take more and more questions. Um, yeah, yes, Min. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, uh, thank you all. This was really incredible. I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Um, my question is about. Um, I think a point that Munir made earlier about kind of contesting the nation state, but in this very like, you know, complex political situation, uh, what you think of, I guess how like struggles or internationalisms from below emerge um, through people who have this very complex relationship with the nation state. I'm thinking Kashmir, but also maybe other places and of course, Julan, like I feel like I'm learning a lot about yeah, the limits of nationalism as well and the limits of its liberatory power. So I don't know, but I would love to hear any thoughts you have on on yeah, on on what you know, what you think of this. Any reflections? It's not really a question, it's more like any reflections you have. Thank you. Thank you. Um, others um, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Thank you for this uh, wonderful uh, talk. Uh, my name is Mansour Nasasri. I'm a visiting professor at King's College. Um, 
I have a question to uh, uh, Munir uh, in relation to the last point you mentioned. Why the Jaulanian, not the Syrian? Um, that's uh, because you talked about uh, identity. So I guess identity is very important here in the politics of the um, uh, the community uh, for Jaulan. So why why Jaulanian, not um, not Syrian, uh, as uh, as an important component of the identity of the people? I guess. Uh, as, uh, as the first point. And the second point is to Michael. Um, you mentioned indigenous in one sentence, the Israeli claiming indigeneity in the Golan Heights. So I, I think you might want to uh, elaborate that there is a discourse in, amongst the Palestinians in Israel uh, these days about the indigeneity. Uh, and the Palestinians are the indigenous. Uh, wh wh whether you find any connections with the Syrians um, um, in this case, about the debate on indigeneity, uh, if there is a, a unified front of indigeneity of Palestinians and Syrians uh, in Jordan, that's a, I think a significant component. You might want want to uh, to to elaborate. And I think another point you mentioned, Moin, is also um, uh, sorry, Munir. In this case, the, the social history. Can you tell us something about the the continued relationship between the Syrians and both sides of the borders? Uh, and also it's related to the, um, the identity issue. Thank you. Okay, and we'll take one last uh, question. Okay, maybe two last questions. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead, please Please be brief. You have to press the, yeah, keep pressing it. Is this all right? Is it working? Okay, we'll, we'll just get the mic for you, sorry. Okay, here we go, yeah, okay. My name is Raith Armalazi. I'm wondering if I can probe more deeply into what we heard from our friend uh, uh, um, Skandar, Mr. Skandar, right? Uh, regarding the impact of the, co the conflict in Syria, the tragic events in Syria, on the dynamic of the opposition to the uh, colonization and the occupation. And if I heard him correctly, he said that um, this has Made it, uh, made the Syrianization of the, uh, the Syrian identity of the Jolanis a bit more ambivalent than before. Am I correct in, in, in concluding that from from what I heard? Okay, thank thank you. Um, and finally, we'll have one one last uh, Sandra. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Sandra. I used to work for the Middle East Centre. Um, thanks for the talk. I'm really looking forward to reading my 15-pound copy <laughs> of the book. Um, I have a really brief question about curriculum, uh, about the curriculum, which I thought was one of the most exciting aspects of the project. Um, you mentioned it was a kind of resource for Arab universities. You've made it available as, as a resource for Arab universities. What buy-in, what engagement have you had from Arab universities, and are there plans to translate um, some of the archive material and make it available for non-Arab universities as well. Okay. Who wants to start? Um, I know that uh, some of the questions were for okay. uh, Munir and uh, Michael, oh, Michael explicitly, but uh, I just wanted to kind of add on to this limits of nationalism discourse. And I think it, the, the question is kind of being repeated in different ways. Uh, just for me, like during my, my PhD and, uh, in the Golan Heights, the land becomes also as important as belonging to the nation states. So where the Jawlani identity comes from is what is exemplified in Yasser Khanjar's poetry, kind of disconnection to the land, to the crop, to the apple, apples of the Jolan or to Fahi Jolan is something that 
instantly when we speak about it, it just speaks of the Jolani. And we cannot see an apple of the Jolani without thinking of that, that link between people and the land that goes beyond nation state. Uh, and I think here, I, I mentioned before kind of this idea that um, in, the, in 1982, during the general strike, during when, when the Jaulanis refused Israeli citizenship and through the Israeli ideas in a collective action of refusal, um, there was a sense of solidarity from Palestinians all across Palestine, from Palestinians in 48, from Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, coming together as one. And I think this also exemplifies kind of how these nation state, the borders that were anyways, uh, developed by colonizing powers was dissipated. And I, I feel that is a very powerful aspect of the Jaulani identity that comes into being, in addition to belonging to Syria as a refusal to being uh, forcefully included in, in Israeli citizenship, uh, and also at the same time finding their place in, in, the, in the geography and in, the, in their locations where they are. So it's a, it's a combination of those three. Um, about the curriculum, um, I think yeah, it's it's been really great that we managed to to produce the curriculum first as a first instance and a first objective to be taught in the Zayt University. There is no class or course or module on 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 the Syrian Golan Heights, and we thought it's a great experience or experiment. Sorry to uh, to speak of Palestine through the eyes of other collect the other struggles struggles that are so close to home. And others that might be further apart, further afield, like in in the U.S., for example, and other uh, other colonized uh, regions. Um, so uh, we we have managed to to translate a bit. Of, we have the translation of the actual uh, curriculum, but we also plan on making sure that the website has both Arabic and English languages in terms of especially the archives that we have collected, pictures uh, from official archives and also from family and collective archives, making sure that they are there in, in both languages. And we have a lot of ambitious plans. <laughs> we'll see how much we can get done uh, in, the, in the coming years. So, yeah. I, I just want to, you said that so eloquently, Muna. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree that we're talking about a hybrid identity for the Jalani. And I think one thing also to think about this, this, this identity is relational in a sense. It's, it's, it's being forced on a people who would you know, identify as Syrian, that they're in this, this kind of exceptional political situation. And they're forging this identity in a, in a defensive manner. Yeah, in relation to a, uh, a political ideology in which they, as a people, are being othered. You are the other, you know. So this is not a, a, a uh, sort of uh, a, a, a um, political culture in which their existence is validated in their own terms. They are being othered. And there's a whole... Um, I think it's important to understand that relational kind of positioning around the politics. It's the same with indigeneity. We don't talk, there's an interesting discussion in Palestine studies about indigeneity and some scholars are really skeptical and caution uh, um, against what they see as the essentializing uh, implications of the use of indigeneity, meaning that you are the original people of this land. There's all sorts of implications follow from that. But of course, you know, we need to look at objectively you need to look at historical presence, cultural presence, language, you know, all these cultural markers to, 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 to support the identification of a people as being indigenous. And again, 
indigeneity in this situation, of course, it you know it is it, 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 it plays to the to the Zionist sort of uh, uh, ideology of saying we are the original people of this land, we are the historical people. So, in a situation where you're being othered in this in this political way, it's not surprising indigeneity is then mobilized. It's mobilized in a cultural political way, and I think what we try and do in the book. Is, is deal with this in a, in a, in a mature way. So we're not, we're not objectifying, I don't think, we're centralizing indigeneity in the book. And this is because this is part of the self-determination of a community of their own identity. So what we're trying to do is, is allow that space to, 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 to show that these people uh, have their own ideas and visions and dreams and culture and they should have the space to identify themselves autonomously. The extent to which that involves indigeneity or nationality is for them to decide, okay? And but the least we can do as, as academics, so those of us like me who are outside this, is undertake the critical intellectual work that enables that to happen, at least uh, uh, in terms of uh, social science. I'll just very briefly say that I, I, I agree fully um, with regard to the the question of, of the curriculum and what what's so intriguing to me as someone who has you know, straddled uh, both the United States and, and Palestine um, is that we are absolutely impoverished um, in so many ways. Um, into, uh, with, with the production in Arabic about Palestine, from Palestine, from within Palestine. Um, and and uh, it's, it's a great challenge actually to um, find material um, that doesn't, uh, um, uh, so that we can teach in, in our classes. And so what we're, I think one of the challenges now that myself and, and, and Mona and Ala and, and Munir are, are tasked with is actually producing work in Arabic so that we can um, actually teach it at Yuzay University, so. Thank you, and uh, Munir. Uh, yeah, well, um, I think the questions are very uh, deep and um, important. Uh, I, let me just try to gather some, some ideas about this. Um, the first, uh, the first comment on on community and the state. I think this is an inspiration from the work of uh, Partha Chatterjee and Subaltern studies um, on 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 what what the politics of the government mean. Um, uh, it, it's it's all these ways of of fighting for resources, not through the cons accepted bourgeois norms of rights. And it's, to me, this is part of how the Jolanis manage their lives with the, with the Israeli state. Uh, they don't ask for formal rights of representation. That doesn't mean that they don't negotiate this governing institution, uh, but they don't, they do it by not identifying with it. So that they want to keep a distance, okay? And what is this distance? This distance creates a sense of a realm of an identity that is not touched by the bureaucracy or by the state. Uh, for me, this is not a symbolic thing. This is really 
comes into the heart of, of social fabric and social dynamics because people be, be, began to, to uh, uh, gain, uh, translate national value, the national value of being Syrian, identifying and doing things to really express that you are not Israeli, that you are Syrian, but not, not for free to gain social capital within a community. So, so the, the realm of community, uh, the, the realm of identity that is, is distinct from, has a, has a sociological function. It says that we resist this integration into the criteria and the system that governs us of the, 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 the uh, colonial market or the colonial bureaucracy. It's not well theorized yet. It's not, it's not really well theorized in the book, but that's, that's the, the spirit of, of trying to think about what identity really means in, non, in, in a non-essentialist sense. Um, but there are historical roots to, to identity that forces you into something that some, some social long, the long view of social history, not only, uh, you know, people interacting now, family life in the present, but also looking at the community as a political structure, as a political community that has fought, lived, experienced through its memory, at least now lived memory, five regimes, the Ottomans, the French, the national Syrian, Syrian uh, independent state, then the military rule of the Israelis, and then the, the, of the, uh, the civil rule of the Israelis, the civil, five different uh, regimes within 100 years. Uh, so this is not a community that simply reacts to the discourse of rights. It, it, it speaks, it looks at itself through a long distance view of where did we come from or forefathers and now. Uh, I agree fully with, with Michael that the, the language of indigeneity is really is dangerous. Uh, it's an imposition of a new kind of order. Uh, people in the, in the 80, in the, in the Ottoman period didn't think in through, through those terms, uh, which uh, really need to be uh, thought uh, well. But I, I, I really can't really address the depth of your questions. Now we don't, it's not really the, but I hope we, we could actually have more thorough workshops and, and similar ideas and, and um, comparisons between different. One thing I can say quickly about the, the, the kind of the question of whether the Syrian, Syrian identity is fading, I don't think so. I think, and I've seen this in, in writings by, by Syrians in the last decade, uh, Syrian academics, critical Syrian academics, oppositional who were forced to leave uh, leave Syria. Basically, there is a, 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 an effort, I think, uh, of rethinking what what community means versus the nation state. This is not only the case of the Golan, but we haven't really got the the chance to speak to each other. And I think the, the, these this is something that might be might have relevance much beyond. Uh, this, this, uh, the tragic case of Syria. I think uh, uh, nation states are pathological everywhere in the world, and we should, we shouldn't. Uh, it's not that we are asking for, you know, sympathies can be for for a small community. It's just I think that we we actually have common experiences. Uh, we have we need just to re them. 
Thank you. I, I Thank think you. that this is. Thank you very much, uh, Munir, and I think uh, we will conclude um, the event. Thank you very much to the audience for sticking with us and to the speakers, and congratulations.